You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the podcast. This is Ginny, and this is an Art History Babes podcast. Obviously, you know that from seeing it. Um, It's weird introducing these when it's just myself. (laughs) But I have a very special guest with me this afternoon, author and art historian Bridget Quinn. Bridget, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. It's been when we got back in touch, it was like, yes, like um, absolutely have to do an episode with you. We have a history. Yes. Um, I know. So a little history background. Bridget is the author of Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Made Art and History in That Order, which came out in 2017, which was right when I finished graduate school and a good friend gifted that book to me as like a graduation gift. And I read it and I was like, oh, this is great. Like, I love the way that it's written. It's personal, but also really informative and funny. And so I emailed you (laughs) saying, you know, hey, if you need research assistant work for the next book, you know, I'm happy to help and kind of didn't really think I would hear anything back. (laughs) Of course not. That's crazy. Nobody does that. (laughs) But you wrote back and said yes. And so we started working together. That was time is also relative now. I know. I, I have no idea when that was. I feel like that must have been 2017 as well. I think so. I think so. And so I started doing research for you on your second published book that came out in September, which is She Votes, How U.S. Women Won Suffrage and What Happened Next, um, which was in line with the 100-year anniversary of the passing of the 19th Amendment. And it came out in August because that's when yes, the thank you. 100-year anniversary happened. Just doesn't really <laughs> yeah. matter. No, me. you're right. I was being um, self-absorbed and thinking about when our book came I was going to say, your <laughs> book came out on my birthday. I'm just going to point that right. out. <laughs> your Virgo book on my Virgo birthday. Exactly. Exactly. I know. I'm like, no books were published beyond September. No, it came out in <laughs> August because that's that's correct when the 19th Amendment was passed. Yeah, 100 years. Crazy. I know. Not that long ago, honestly. Really not. Really not. And it's, I mean, it's just such a wonderful book. I'm so in love with it. You know how I feel about your writing and how much I enjoy the way you write. Oh, thank you. Did you already did you already say this that it's illustrated by 100 women artists? I didn't. Okay. Oh, great. Okay. But yeah, yes, it is. it is. It is. And the illustrations are I know I love them. Inc- I mean such the, the interpretations that they make, they add so much to the book. They show such a wide array of different styles. It's just, they're beautiful. It was so amazing. I did none of the selection of the images. I was going to ask. And that was because I just couldn't do that and write the book. I mean, imagine commissioning artwork from 100 artists and (laughs) following through that process. Like there was just no way I could because, um, I mean, I started the book after Broad Strokes came out and it needed to come right. out in time to be published for the uh, 100 year anniversary. So I just right, thought I couldn't. Right. So anyway, it was like a big present when I got to see them in bashes as they came in and I was blown away and love them. And then there are just so many amazing artists working right now. It's very cool. I know. I know. It really is. And it's just so anytime, obviously we're art historians, so we love images paired with information and text (laughs) but you know who else loves images everybody exactly like that's the part that makes me the happiest about the book is I feel like 
no matter who it is, it makes it accessible. And I don't mean accessible because images are easier. I mean, accessible because it's going to punch someone's ticket somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's very true. It's very true. And especially when you have a hundred different artists right. all in this book, there's going to be, you know, like someone might see an illustration and be like, wow. And then they look up who it is and then they find them on Instagram. And I know, know that's the other thing is that you can, because of course I started following all these women of course, and yeah. they're freaking amazing and have amazing lives. And I'm also so impressed with how many of them are activists or if they're not activists are just really socially engaged in a way that I think is so, so impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's been such an incredible thing just to witness, especially over the past eight months in particular, nine months or whatever it's been since March. Um, Uh, Yeah, forever. (laughs) We've always lived like this. Yeah, right. But just in terms of how much art and activism is being just constantly moving and active and accessible on platforms like social media, where you're seeing so many artists that are responding directly to, you know, really heavy, really powerful uh, events that are going on around us all the time. And that's just been so, I mean, art has always been socially, politically involved. It's been, you know, in every revolution there's ever been, but now with kind of the accessibility, added accessibility of social media, more and more people are able to see artists work that like responds to things that are impacting them in, you know, a daily basis. So that's been totally also though. I mean, yes, for sure. Art has always been involved in every political movement. There's no question about it, but the reception of art that was connected to something political or that was seen as political has not always been open And when I was a young, a young art historian, (laughs) when I was a baby art historian, you know, political art was not just looked down on, it was considered anathema to fine art. And I think that's really hard to imagine now, but that was definitely like social realist art of the early 20th century was all shit. Am I allowed to swear? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, And, and even, you know, so much feminist art was completely looked down on. Mm-hmm. and considered, you know, flat-footed and embarrassing or whatever other denigrating term could be come up with. Right. Um, you know, what was good was minimalism. What was good was abstraction that was not referencing anything else. What was good was really, really these extremes of purity. And I love mm-hmm. seeing all that being completely dismantled or having been dismantled. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, with so much of art that's directly involved in protests and movement and all that, you know, so much of it is made to be, you know, it's put on posters. It's right. put in high res images that you can download and like put on your own Instagram and things like that. And that kind of circulation of the work is off, you know, in the past, it was tried to like, oh, that's that's lower brand, and right. you know, it's not like a giant yeah. pan. Yeah, exactly. And that agreed. That's all. Those kind of preconceptions are getting kind of largely thrown out. And it's like, no, like that's that's just not the way it is anymore. Like, does anyone love minimalism anymore? I mean, I I truly don't do. know. I've always <laughs> been a maximalist. So. Same. Oh my god. <laughs> And I was always like, what is wrong with me? I just have very bad taste. But now I don't think that. Right, right. And Bridget, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background. You know, we have a lot of people who listen to our podcast who, you know, study art history or minor in it and are so much of, as you know, and I'm sure as you've experienced numerous times, people with kind of art history combined backgrounds get that question like, you know, what are you going to do with that? So whenever we have someone... Oh, who's I know so <laughs> whenever we have someone who's working <laughs> kind of in that greater visual culture arts world take it take it away from as early as you want to <laughs> okay well first of all well I'll just start at um I'll start with this that I've had this question asked to me a million times yeah. um sometimes by young people but mostly by parents who are freaking out mm-hmm. um I am 53 and sound younger because I'm immature, but um, <laughs> I was also a high school teacher for a long time and I was an adjunct professor and 
people really worry about their kids studying art history because what are they going to do with that degree? And first of all, I am a thousand percent opposed to higher education being seen as a vocational uh, training, yes. but that yeah. that's that's my personal thing. The the part where people are always so concerned, like it's this useless degree. And what I say, <laughs> if it helps, is that there is no other humanities where there is a market. There is an art market. There is no history market. There's no English market. Publishing is kind of an English market, but it's not a very good one. Mm -hmm. The fact is, with an art history degree, you can go into publishing, you could work for a gallery, you could work for a museum, you could be a critic, you could work for private collectors. I've done all of those things. Right. And um, there's actually an economic engine behind art. So if that is what people are concerned about, I think you have less reason to be concerned than many other degrees. I personally mm -hmm. think it's not a good reason to choose something to study or educate yourself Agreed. on. But um, mm -hmm. I'll also say that I did not get a PhD because I consciously decided I wanted to be a writer rather than an art historian, mm -hmm. ironically, <laughs> 30 <laughs> years ago. And I have made my living, I have a master's degree, I have made my living as an art historian supporting my writing my entire adult life. Mm -hmm. As a teacher, working in museums, working for galleries, managing private collections, all of those things, and as an arts writer. So I know it's possible. I've done it. And, you know, writing is a way harder way to make a living. Yes. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure I answered the question, but that's my rant. It, yeah, it, it always makes me sad. Um, but I get it. People have bills. They have student loans. I completely get right. it. But, um, right, right. but I do think art history actually has a lot more uh, connections than many other fields. I think so, too. I think so, too. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate that education is kind of thought of in that way of it's just a means to an end where it's like you study this because you want to get this job when you get out. And in a lot of ways, it's it takes away, I think, from just the joy of learning and exploring and being in education environment where you can take different classes and pick a major because you love it and it's really interesting to you and it's really engaging. Right. So I just kind of have a problem with that in general, but that's just a greater <laughs> mechanism of kind of the capitalist machine that we live in. <laughs> totally. Right. If we lived in Norway where schools paid for, right. maybe we wouldn't care at all. And I'm sure we wouldn't. But I, I mean, but how many people do you know who work in the field that they got their degree in? Very few. Not many. Exactly. So, and I mean, I look at the state of the world, I think maybe if we worked on like how to develop our capacities, how to develop our thinking, how mm -hmm. to develop our humanity, wouldn't that be the best use of education? Definitely. That's what I think anyways. I, I agree with you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I agree with you very much so. Yeah. And I think too, you know, what I look at art history and, you know, the benefit of art history and a lot of other similar topics of study in the humanities, you know, it all, it encourages you to think critically, Absolutely. you know, and, and to really like ask questions and consult a lot of different topics, not just one. Right. And just that skill in general is a very translatable skill and just like a good life skill. Huge life skill. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to read, if I could, this one quick passage from your book that kind of reminds me a little bit about this and talking about how, you know, we look at history and art and, you know, is it rigid? Is it that? But really, it's more telling a story. It's more like thinking critically and consulting sources, but also looking at history and relaying that history as a form of storytelling and how important that is, you know, just kind of like the shared collective human experience. So here's what you wrote in your book, quote, should I confess right up front that I'm more art historian than ahem, capital H historian? I'm more than willing to arm wrestle how over how much it matters. What I am mostly is a storyteller. And what I believe more than anything is that the stories of history need to be told. True stories, to quote Norwegian painter Edvard Munch, about, quote, living people who breathe, feel, suffer, and love. 
And I just read that. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's what I think too. <laughs> that's what it's about. And, and it wasn't just looking at Edvard Munch's paintings. I read that in his diaries, right? So mm-hmm. that's the other thing. Art history isn't, people have this idea that you're just like looking at pictures and that there's something very surface sounding about it, but it's not like that at all. Yeah. It's a very deep, rich field. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's about human experience. And there's, you know, you can study art history and learn about politics at the time. You oh can gosh, absolutely. Learn, you can learn about trends and what was popular culturally. And it's just, you know, it's the human experience. And it's how people have expressed human experience over. Time. I mean, it's everything. I have a friend who wrote his PhD dissertation on paintings that no longer existed none of them but it was all based on the economic back he had all of the transactional records Mm -hmm. and so it was an economic study so it it can be many things many many things yes absolutely that is really interesting I I always feel like it would be a great character in a novel like an art historian writing a dissertation about invisible paintings Ooh, yes yes it's kind of like Umberto (laughs) Eco painting uh novel (laughs) absolutely absolutely yeah I agree completely and I think that's why I resonate with you on a personal level and also with your writing so much because the way that you explain art history and history is such a personal way I mean throughout broad strokes and throughout she votes you aren't afraid of making personal connections to things and I love that because you know you'll be writing a chapter and you know connected to like you being an adolescent growing up in Montana and feeling like oh you know one of your friends wasn't friends with you anymore because she was hanging out with the cute pretty popular girls and then you know you're watching the news and (laughs) you see Fredan and you're like wow I love that (laughs) you incorporate you weave all these personal connections throughout the book because that's you know that's what it's really about and even just what we were saying and talking about the illustrations through this book and people looking through that and they will connect with one artist or they'll connect with one image in particular and and we connect personally with people from history with people from art history and so all your books have this very like personal fabric totally. throughout it and you know she votes especially because totally. you talk about a lot of incredible women in this book and you know I'm not gonna list all of them we'd be here too long but you know you're talking about Sojourner Truth, Sacagawea, Betty Friedan, Linda Nochlin, Audrey Lord, the Gorilla Girls, Riot Girl. <laughs> There's such a fun breadth in this book. And, you know, ultimately it is, you know, about women and the history that women have made and fought for for so, so long. It's not over, man. It's not. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the reason why I include my story. I mean, some yeah. of it is that I'm allowed to because I wrote the book. Right. Uh, but but <laughs> quite often, I mean, I, I have like two nasty reviews on um, Amazon. Not that I read the reviews Ugh. or think you should. It's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, they both make me laugh because they're both by men, of course. And they both <laughs> are so annoyed that I've inserted myself into the story when the of Broad Strokes. And the premise of Broad Strokes is that women should write themselves into the story. And so for me, part of my being in the books and in the story is part of my feminist um, artistic practice. It's like, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. am making space for myself. I may be nobody, it's fine, but this is my book. So I'm I'm in it. And I think that's really important for women, especially to just insist on our position and our place. I mean, I lived as an art historian for so long as someone without a PhD, like, oh, well, I can't really say I don't have a PhD. And then I started looking around. I was like, tons of people in the art world are not a PhDs. I don't have to have a PhD to have legitimacy. It's fine. The art history police are not coming for me. (laughs) I am am able to stake out my own position. And um, that was really liberating. And then it was so it was so interesting to me to see people refer to me as an independent scholar. And I was like, Oh, yes, I'm an independent scholar. That's there's a word for it even. (laughs) I didn't know. So, you know, it's easy to carry these sort of I know wound is too strong. But these like things you 
I don't know, these, these scarlet letters that you think you carry that no one else can see. And um, yeah, that's why your guys' podcast is so awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, we likewise have gotten some kind of nasty reviews from men as well. who are like, oh, you know, they ramble too much or, oh, they have vocal fry. Oh, I also have vocal fry (laughs) and everyone can just fuck off about that. I know. Like (laughs) that is how I talk. And I mean, other women police that too. And it is, first of all, we are, I mean, I don't know if you're from California, but I've lived in California Mm -hmm. for decades. Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up with vocal fry. I developed it. I don't see any reason to disabuse myself of my own voice at this point in my life. It's fine. It's fine, everybody. It's it's absolutely <laughs> Don't fine. Don't worry about it's it. It's absolutely right. fine. But yeah, women in particular get very criticized for the way in which we sound. But you can go back to ancient Greece to find. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. The ooh, they were. I took a seminar in graduate school on the ancient Greeks and just you know from like mythology where like how many women are raped in greek mythology and it's all oh yeah oh they're bad right right and it's all to control women like oh you know don't leave the family home and don't go outside and this and oh, that oh it's the premise of everything yes comparing them to monsters and but yeah. specifically <laughs> complaints about women's voices in greek history roman history yes right so there's a lot of baggage there i mean you know we saw it instantly in the presidential debates mm-hmm. or pre-presidential debates when, you know, immediately as Elizabeth Warren is being called strident and um, that mm-hmm. people saying they don't like her voice mm-hmm. or don't like, what was it that yeah. Kamala yeah. Harris, they were saying things right. like, I don't know, um, she's just so intense and she's so ambitious and she's so, it's like, she's just talking. For so sure. yeah, I feel a, a strong need to push back against that kind of uh, vocal. Agree, agree. <laughs> and you know, with written content as well. I mean, I haven't looked at too many of the reviews on our own book because I, I'm sort of just trying to be like, all right, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm living my life. Um, <laughs> That's the only way. Yeah, it is. Otherwise, you're just paralyzed. But. I'm sure similar things in there where it's like, okay, you know, we swear in the book and you swear a bit in your yeah. book and the way that you write is is very conversational. And there's going to be pushback with that kind of style. Especially with something like art history. Exactly, because art history has this whole kind of association of being very stoic and pretentious. High-minded. High-minded. You know, it's only, you can only read this if you took this particular seminar and you have this level of degree and area of specialization. Right. But there's more happening in this vein where books about art and art history are written in a way that's like you're having a conversation with someone. I mean, it's a way of bringing it into the present. It's a way of of puncturing all of that bloviating and just saying like, we can talk about this the same way you talk about your favorite band. It doesn't really matter. It's, there's nothing, uh, what's that phrase? All art was contemporary once. Yes. It, 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 it doesn't, it is for you, whoever you are, it's for you. And it's approachable and accessible and can be spoken about in any way. You don't need dialectics and you don't need deconstruction. You don't need anything. Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, it's a beautiful sentiment. It's one that I know you know, we believe in very strongly. You believe in very strongly. And we're, I'm just seeing more and more people just bringing art very much to the forefront and art history very much to the forefront in ways that are, hey, let's have a conversation about this. It's really cool. I guarantee you can find some something that you will connect to from this or you can make some kind of connection of your own and have some personal experience with something about art and art history. Have you seen that book that came out? I don't know. It came out just a couple of months ago, maybe around the time yours came out. And it's images from art history and then they're paired with like things men say no to women. i haven't it's seen hilarious that. shoot i wish i knew the real title but I'll, oh it's very funny. i'll find it's it. kind of like the old toast um online things but yeah but they're so spot on and they're so funny and um <laughs> it's like you know and like art that that's what's changed is that art is just available i mean 
the internet has changed that, right? Like it used to be very Mm -hmm. difficult to get access to even looking at images of fine art. You had to have a very expensive book. Almost none of them would be in color. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a completely different, it's a completely different situation now in terms of people's access, even to the images. But just to go back to beginning art, my artistry career, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I left also was realizing that the kind of artistry I was interested in, which was people's stories, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the story of art history, the story of human beings, that that was very suspect. And it was, it was uh, definitely something to be stamped out. Mm -hmm. Art and connoisseurship were these hermetically sealed things. They were texts that were pure and referred to themselves. (laughs) Um, I mean, they might refer to the social situation or they might refer, but, but biography was just like, that was just lazy and, and romantic and silly and beneath consideration. And I was like, yeah, but how did those women get to be painters? What did happen to them? Why didn't they you know, why didn't they last in history, whatever it was. And I just saw that the things I was interested in weren't valued and were the opposite were discouraged. So Mm -hmm. um, that's changed a lot too. And that's cool. I totally agree. And I had a similar feeling where, because when I had originally gone into my master's program, I had every intention of doing that, wrapping it up quick, and then shooting into a doctorate program. Same. And then, you know, I had a, an amazing experience at Davis and I learned so much and had a lot of wonderful professors and peers, obviously, would not have had this podcast were it not for grad school. But it's that kind of thing about once you get further and further in art history where the lens is just narrowing and narrowing, where it's like you become more and more and yeah. more and more specialized. And instead of sitting at a desk, like, here's my little like metaphor time, you're sitting at a desk and like you can look out at a whole like horizon line and there's a lot of things on your desk and you look out and or you fiddle with something on your desk. But then the further along you get, you're just like hunching over and hunching over and looking closer and closer at like in front of you. And I wanted to, like you, be able to tell more stories about anyone. I didn't want to just have to like stay in my little 17th century window. (laughs) I wanted to talk about people from, you know, that are on Instagram right now or people from the 19th century or people from ancient Greece. (laughs) I mean, that's exactly to, to the image, my experience, I was 23 years old living in New York city. And I just Mm -hmm. thought I would look out my window Mm -hmm. You know, while I'm studying medieval architecture and think I could be living in New York City as a 23 year old right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm in this chair 10 hours a day that there's something not right about this. Right. I want to be an artist. I yes. want to be in the mix. Yes. Um, yes. So, yeah, I totally get it. Although, oh, I should. This will be like the only public confession I've ever made of this. Ooh. So I am 53. <laughs> I know. And lately I've been thinking it's the only thing I've left undone in my life is getting my PhD. Mm-hmm. Should I get a PhD? Mm-hmm. Or is that just like a ridiculous vanity project? I have no idea. It's just, I'm just mulling it. I'm mulling it. I think it's worth mulling. And I know, I think so too. In I think, you know, all all four of the babes have talked about this because all four of us had the same thing. It was like, yes, PhD. And then, oh, never mind. But none of us have closed the door on it completely right. because you just never know. And but also now with Zoom, I think, what if I could just take classes somewhere? Like, yeah, that's the hard part with the PhD is going back and being in class, you know, having to be right. in person somewhere. Yes. yes. Pull up your life. But maybe, maybe classes will be conducted differently going forward. Yeah. Know. Yeah. It could very well be. It could very well be in, you know, I always love taking classes. I miss sitting in lectures. Right. And Me too. I love that. Taking notes and, you know, especially if it's like a dynamic, energetic professor, like I really do miss that. So right. and I you don't understand really that anywhere else. You don't, you know. Yeah, I you really don't. I, I do miss that. <laughs> Does this is? Pardon me if I'm asking a completely crazy question. Does Davis have a PhD? They do not. Okay. So out of the UCs, uh, I think it's just Davis and Irvine 
that have masters only okay. programs. Whereas I think every other UC, except for maybe like Merced, right. uh, has like the master's combined PhD. So interesting. And that was good too. Cause I, yeah, no, took terminal, a small bite instead of a very big bite. I completely agree <laughs> that that's really great. Yeah, definitely. But I wanted to talk to you more about a specific chapter from your book about a very interesting woman mm. who I learned so much more about her doing the re- some of the research for this chapter in your book compared to what I had learned in classes. But we'll take a quick break before we move on to that, and we'll be right back. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Right. And we are back. And we're going to talk about Mary Cassatt. Not who you think she is. Not at all. And I totally had that misconception of her for the longest time until I started doing more research about Mary Cassatt. You know, because as happens, we're humans and it's people do this a lot. Yeah. (laughs) But She's one of those artists that a lot of people think of her in a certain way based on most of the art she's known for. So being a painter of a lot of kind of domestic scenes or scenes of mothers with children, I kind of just was like, Mary Cassatt, like, okay, she liked painting mothers and children and babies and, you know, she was into Japanese woodblock prints, but like, so were a lot of her contemporaries, like, you know, Degas and Van Gogh and those guys. And that's kind of all I knew and just really didn't know. Yeah, I think that's what most people Yeah, know. and just didn't know her story. And, you know, because in, cl- in class, I think a lot of times, unless you were taking maybe a specific seminar on her or had a professor who was really interested in her artwork and her relation to women's suffrage other than that like it's just kind of like memorizing image ids (laughs) for mary cassatt's work which was my experience but it and you conflate her with what she's depicting but i have a couple things to say about that which is it you know it's a reflection on how we hold what women's work, women's lives, we hold it slightly in contempt, even women like you and I unconsciously, right. because we see women and babies and we think, meh. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But no. And we think like, oh, she's too sweet. She's saccharine. She's always painting women and babies. We don't think Chimabue or Giotto or Raphael is too sweet. Right. We don't conflate them mm-hmm. with babies. We don't think that they're mm-hmm. sentimental. Mm-hmm. Very good point. Because they're not women. So that's part of it. And the other part is that it also happens deliberately. I mean, why are those her most important works? Because it fits a nice narrative to have a woman painter doing these sweet paintings. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there's not the thought of kind of contextualizing it, too, to be like, okay, you know, why are so many women painters that we're familiar with, so many of their subjects were women and their children. And then it's like, oh, that's because that's what was more accessible to them. You know, you have like... Well, because they couldn't have a nude model. Exactly. Because they could, and they couldn't go to all these exciting places the other Impressionists were going to. Exactly. Exactly. You know, uh, yeah, that was their sphere. But also, I mean, think how badass it is to say okay, I'm still going to think my mother reading the newspaper is worthy of high art. Yes. Like, fuck off. She's important too. Absolutely. As important as a prostitute in the Moulin Rouge or whatever it is. Yes. As exciting to me, as noble a figure. And 
I get kind of jazzed by that too. Like that she endows dignity to these very, you know, nannies and young mothers and her older mother. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's it's awesome. And also, so, I mean, I don't need to tell you, you did a bunch of the research for the, for the chapter, but Cassant never questioning like, well, how did she end up in France? Well, she went to France to be an artist and she was an independent woman abroad her entire life. And she Mm -hmm. broke with her family. She was not Degas' student, which is repeated over and over again. She was Mm -hmm. an independent artist who was invited to join the Impressionist circle, the same as anyone else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, imagine how difficult it was. She did come from I wouldn't say a lot of wealth. Her family became wealthy when she was older, but she came from enough privilege to be able to Mm -hmm. study abroad, live abroad. But so did many, many, many Americans. Um, You know, the, the grand tour is in full effect and um, she makes choices that are really, I mean, it's, we think of impressionism as so kitschy and sentimental and it was so radical and so avant-garde. Absolutely. And then she breaks with her family because she supports women's suffrage when they are powerful people in the United States, her brother was the head of a railroad. Like they were. Right. And they, they were like anti-suffrage activists, activists, right? Like they were actively donating money to anti-suffrage, like the complete opposite end of the spectrum from where she was politically. Quote unquote spinster living abroad. I mean, you'd think she would meet her family, Mm -hmm. her brothers, her nieces and nephews. And she just says, no, Mm -hmm. it's not okay. It's not okay with me. It yeah. takes a, sta- a political yeah. stance that's really brave. And the outcome was not clear. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, let's ooh, let's talk about the uh, mural that she made, because I loved your description of the mural and kind of your interpretation that you took from it. But just a bit of context, this was a modern woman mural that was created for the women's building at the 1893 world's columbian exposition in chicago it was huge it was like a world's fair like like where this what the eiffel tower was built for in paris similar kind of extravaganza right yes so she had not lived in the united states for a long time decades and it was a chance to kind of get her foot back on american soil and to do a you know monumental public painting not not a canvas and so you know super excited the women's building also was done entirely by women it was mm-hmm. designed by mm-hmm. an MIT graduate who was a woman all of the statuary everything like the landscaping everything was done by women it was hugely popular it was visited by 200,000 women amazing in the time it was open including um Susan B. Anthony and Carrie Chapman Cat, who Cat becomes the woman who takes over the mantle from Susan B. Anthony and eventually sees the 19th Amendment right. through in 1920. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the painting is like, if you were to see it now, it, it doesn't exist. Uh, we don't know what happened to it. Um, that's how little in regard <laughs> Mary Cassatt was. Yes. Uh, her only man- monumental work of art uh, has gone missing, probably was destroyed in a fire. The, the central, first of all, it's three panels, women pursuing art, knowledge, and fame. All three things, not really things women should be pursuing. Yeah. Uh, so already has this sort of politi- political, well, the whole building is political in that it's a woman's building. But the, the central lunette, which is monumental, is really tame looking. It's and wholesome. It's women picking apples and handing them down to younger women. <laughs> doesn't get much more wholesome than that. And it's very (laughs) ruddy, rosy-cheeked, lovely young lasses. And it upset people because there were no men in it. Because women in the 19th century existed as helpmeets to men. Right. And uh, I quote a letter that uh, Cassatt wrote to someone else saying another friend had complained that it showed women without men and how outrageous that was. And Cassatt said, well, I assume that men in all their glory are depicted on the walls of other buildings. Yeah, duh. Um, so, <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of, so you need to have that lens of history to understand like this was radical, this very banal looking painting. And also it references the fall in the Garden of Eden. And um, rather than women as the agents of the destruction of all of humankind and bringing, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, original sin into the world, instead of that, it is a wholesome 
scene of women passing down the fruits of their labor from one generation to another. Yes. Um, and so in that way, it's kind of a, you know, an F you to all of Western civilization, basically. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, right. uh, you know, right. she was, she was bad. She was, she really was. And especially reading snippets of her letters and I think Mm -hmm. they even have some original copies you know she had sent to her sister and her friends yes and she she didn't hold back I mean she didn't hold back when she was communicating people but also when she was interacting with people I mean her and Degas Degas. were buddies but (laughs) she she gave him shit like she had totally. no problem. <laughs> I know. I love, like when you read some of their exchanges, they're so funny because he is like the classic, like snarky Frenchman and she's right? just like having none of it. <laughs> I know. So that's why, especially why when and you see it all the time that when it says that she was a student, it, it, it bugs me. Like yeah. no one would just assume that he's her student. I know. Exactly. Yeah. They did not have that kind of relationship not at, at all. all. Yeah. And I mean, she's. I just have so much respect for her. And, you know, she, um, what was really interesting learning about too, and, and it's, it's quite heartbreaking in a lot of ways in what we were mentioning earlier that a lot of her family back in the States were very anti women's suffrage. And she was mm-hmm. involved in an exhibition in Philadelphia to raise money for women's suffrage. And her family boycotted it and refused to lend any of her artworks that they had in possession to the exhibition. And, you know, just snubbed her. Snubbed her and got others of the upper class to snub yes. the exhibition and to not allow them or pressured them not to have her work yeah exactly and the thing is exactly her family had some of her best works and had much of her early work right um it's also worth saying that her brother alec was the head of i can't remember which railroad you know one of the you'd recognize the name like the pennsylvania Railroad. i think that is (laughs) it actually something from monopoly yeah (laughs) and the railroads were one of the major funders of anti-suffrage so he's not just like her brother he's a dick yeah he it's bad Mm -hmm. like this is massive amounts of money and organization going against women's suffrage. And I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, when I was writing the book and I would think, can you imagine the kind of political movement, the kind of influence you would have to have to have an entire segment of population give you the right to political voice? Yeah. Think about that. All of these women had to try to get men, their only hope to give them the vote. Yes. Give them. I mean, it's a terrible way to say that. No, but they won the vote. But right. But it's amazing that it happened because what was in it for men? Really nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and and many women also were active against and many men were for. But but it's it's a pretty stunning victory. And it comes down to one vote in one state. Mm-hmm. It could easily have gone the other way. I know. Ugh. It's, know, crazy. it's exciting. It, it's it crazy. is. I know. I like get chills thinking about that and just the decades and decades and decades of seven decades, just seven decades. And women died. Yeah. You know, women were tortured and died. Women died from exertion. Mm-hmm. Women were beaten publicly, mm-hmm. you know, tarred and feathered. Women were tortured by the American government. Mm-hmm. Um, and also art was always used always yes. from the beginning. Yes as part of the suffrage fight, because I mean, we all know from propaganda, it works. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it also was a way for women to feel ennobled in their cause. Yes, yes, 100%. Yeah. And, you know, Corey had done her research in grad school for her thesis, she talked a lot about craftivism, mm-hmm. and, you know, talked about a, a whole array of topics within that but it talked a lot about women's suffrage and the use of art and more specifically the use of you know what we would call more like crafts so like knitting crocheting embroidery and banners were a exactly exactly clothing yeah I mean, the women's parades, the suffrage right. parades often had like costumes and banners and um, I mean, even wearing white, it was, mm-hmm. it was a, the reason the early suffragists wore white was because it showed up in newspaper yeah. print uh, reproductions. Right. 
And I mean, they were very visually savvy. Oh, absolutely. Like definitely knew what they were doing and played it very smart as far as that goes. I mean, Alice Paul would would, would sew a star under this giant banner every time another mm-hmm. state ratified. And then she'd kind of fling it out the second story <laughs> balcony. And it looked yeah. great yeah. in pictures, yeah. right? It was so visual. And um, yeah, they were really smart. Yeah. They really were. They really were. I mean, it's it's incredible. And looking at all the different levels at which women were involved in making a difference and making impacts and, you know, looking at like Mary Cassatt, who was involved in exhibitions, who took the loss of a good portion of her family. And I just love her like big fuck you to them <laughs> at the end, after that exhibition where they boycotted it, got a bunch of other people to boycott it. She had written in her will for many of her paintings to go to her nieces and nephews. And she rewrote the will so that they didn't get any of them. And but now we have so many of them in museums instead. So lucky. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and not not just her own paintings, but she had intended, you know, she was a big collector of the early Impressionists. So, sure. I mean, yeah. probably the two reasons we have such, I mean, American collections of Impressionism are fantastic. They're among the best in the yes. world. And that's partly because of the Steins um, collecting them mm-hmm. and especially uh, Mary Cassatt. She gave and sold a lot of the early work herself of the Impressionist circle who were her friends rather than Mm -hmm. let her family Mm -hmm. uh, inherit. Yes. (laughs) I know it is so fun. (laughs) It is. It really is. But she was, she she had a bad temper. Yes. It's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that was (laughs) well worth having a temper tantrum about. That was bullshit. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I know, totally. Can you imagine? No, Just the gall. no not at all. Not at Your all. Your sister's exhibition. Ugh, so gross. I know. I know. Nieces and nephews. That makes me the saddest, actually. I know. I know. Because that part. She had a niece she was very, very fond of who was named after her. That's right. Ellen Mary. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yep. But um, who was on the wrong side of history. I was Don't just going to say you. that. Yes, I was <laughs> just going to say that. And that's, it's so interesting looking at these movements too when there's so much kind of revolutionary momentum going on in the states now and just looking at you know how people have historically fought over issues and how it can like we look at that and it's like okay women's suffrage like they didn't get to vote and then they protested and then they got it and then they did no like there was so like you were saying like women died over it women were beaten it took tore families yeah exactly like we see with mary cassatt there was so much that went into it and so many different people that were involved it wasn't just susan b anthony (laughs) you know yeah i mean that's you know one of the things in the book is that i i kind of tell two stories at once sort of the mainstream narrative mm-hmm. though clear-eyed i hope mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. of susan b anthony elizabeth katie stanton the declaration of rights and sentiments seneca falls convention with a second narrative of the other things the things yes. that fed that the reactions to it yes. um and it's just really important to remember that one of the reasons we know and esteem the names of elizabeth katie stanton and susan b anthony and the seneca falls convention is because those two wrote a four volume history of the history of women's suffrage Mm -hmm. and centered those things. So um, they are important. And so are many other things. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And a good reminder that, you know, if you write the history, you, you can control. Yes, (laughs) this is true. This is true. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great overview and such a balance of, you know, like particular characters that are a part of this story that part of this history you know like like Mary Cassatt but it's a comprehensive book and I love that you go into the 60s and 70s and of course talking about Gorilla Girl and and then wrapping it up at the end of it being something that we're like you said at the beginning of this episode that we we're still fighting and it's still very much a movement that is ongoing and growing and adapting and it's, it's all part of this past history, but it's still like very much in the making, which absolutely. I mean, look at the ERA is back. I know. Like uh, no one saw that coming. Uh, so, so, but yeah, I mean, and hopefully, and I think it is true that white feminism has become 
aware on in a populist sense of its shortcomings yes. and yeah. is realizing that, you know, social justice means everyone. Exactly. 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 And that's, you know, I, I agree that that's happening. And I think we've made tremendous strides as, you know, going from previous years where it was just looked at as like, okay, it's just this one category of rights for people, but no, we can't be asked or challenged to think outside of ourselves and who might be experiencing even worse injustices living in this country. And so I agree that white feminism is it's just been challenged and challenged and rightly so and will continue to be. It's not solved overnight. It's as we know, these things take years and years sometimes. But I'm seeing more and more of an all encompassing kind of thing where it's like people who support women's rights, believe in Black Lives Matter, people who support those things, support trans lives matter and thinking about, you know, immigrant rights. And it's all, we're all kind of supporting each other more and more. I think I like to think that, I mean, there's still, I like to think that too. I don't know. I, I, I I mean, I think that, you know, the next level is that it percolates into the soul a little bit where, Mm -hmm. because I mean, one of the things that was, you know, not surprised, not totally surprising, but totally depressing were were all of these white women caught on tape who had like given to liberal causes, like the woman Cooper in New York city, who's talking to the police and, you know, calling the police on a black bird watcher, like that kind of non-allyship is what you hope can change and that has to leave the academic and enter the reality of human interaction and that's the next yes the next stage yes i hope absolutely absolutely i i hope so too and i think you know what we were saying earlier too about just the internet and social media and how that's really shared so much mm-hmm. art and so much you know political movement and protest and it's also what's holding more people accountable for shit that it wasn't so easy to hold them accountable for before where it's like you call the police on people for barbecuing in a park someone's gonna film you you're you're gonna get laid off from your job right I know I'm laughing you know like no I know it's nice to see like instant karma sometimes and yes yeah yeah and art has a real place to play in all this. I mean, even filming someone, there's something, there's something artistic in that. And oh, totally. uh, I mean, I just oh, I feel totally. like all the time we're living in kind of an art action. I mean, that yes. was sort of how She Votes started was be, me being at the Women's March on Washington and being like, this is like an art action. This is like yes. a... <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and, and it really was just, you know, I mean, talk about craftivism, like even the pussy hats. Mm-hmm. Controversial mm-hmm. WDB. Yeah, like there was something really funny and really, um, yeah, it was it was a an art gesture that that was super successful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's so cool to think of it that way. And that's the art history nerd part of me is like, oh, I can't wait for like someone to research kind of the gaze and the shifting of the gaze from filming people calling the police on black people and protests and how that visually looks. I can't wait for future scholars to write about that. Yeah. I always think about poor future scholars because there's so much material. There's so much. It's never ending. (laughs) (laughs) Since I'm in the thick of it, I'm like, oh, I could just use a little less. Next time I'm going to write about like Paleolithic caves. Yes. Yeah. Something. (laughs) Yes. I get that. I get that impulse. Totally. Totally. But speaking of, you have a new book in the works. Would you like to talk about that briefly. Sure, because I was thinking about it when we were talking about the uh, PhD thing. Maybe that's why it's on my mind. But um, yeah, so my next book is also with Chronicle, which I'm super Love psyched that. about. And it is a, a sort of biography, as my tagline goes, <laughs> of Adelaide Labiguiar, who is chapter three of Broad Strokes. <gasps> yes. Was a painter during the French Revolution who was a self-conscious feminist, mm-hmm. um, a, a woman who spoke out for women artists, who you know, lived at the highest echelons of the art world in France in the 18th century. She was one of only four women in the Royal Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. By some miracle was not beheaded, right. although Ooh. she stayed in Paris and remained politically active. But she paid in another way, which is that her reputation was destroyed um, and her art was forgotten. Yeah. 
and I mean, not completely forgotten, but forgotten in a populist sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so it is a biography of her and also a story of her rivalry with Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, who is the more famous or the most famous 18th century French woman painter, (laughs) and how that rivalry was constructed because there can only be one woman, and how um, Vigée Lebrun has been the winner for 200 years, and I am debating whether she should be the winner or not. (laughs) I like it. I That's like it. it. That's it. So uh, anyway, but it, 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 one of the pr- sort of the conceit of the book is that I'm writing a dissertation on Lavillier. That's how I'm thinking of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Totally. That sounds very exciting. And honestly, French Revolution era art history is so fascinating it's to so me. So good. I'll tell you what's scary about doing all this work right now, though, is seeing history repeat itself. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and seeing how how much liberty can be taken away instantly, never to be recovered. Because when women are crushed uh, in the French, women painters, women artists are basically crushed by the French Revolution Mm -hmm. and then completely destroyed by Napoleon. And it takes generations. I mean, think about the important women painters or artists, French artists of the 19th century. There are very few. There's Rosa Bonheur. And then really there's there's a couple of Impressionists. It was brutal. And and just and besides art, the, the rights that women lost, the standing that they lost, the recasting of how women should be in society. Yeah. It's scary. It really is. It really is. And that's, you know, when you're studying history and art history as much as we often do, you have those moments a lot where mm-hmm. I remember I was writing a research paper on Mussolini and how he kind of revitalized the sense of the Roman Empire and called himself Augustus and commissioned these mosaic tiles to be in a sort of Greco-Roman style and reading his language and his way of describing that. And it was when Trump was doing the make America great again. Exactly what I was thinking when you were saying Yeah. And you have those moments a lot where you're like, yikes, like scary. And these things that feel so far removed, like, oh, that would never happen again. Or, oh, this and that. And it's like, oh, no, (laughs) it's exactly. I mean, someone just wrote a piece that was shared widely about is America the new Rome? Mm. And I was laughing, thinking, is this just becoming obvious to people? (laughs) The fall of the Republic, the rise of empire. I mean, (laughs) What happens to Caesar? Julius Caesar calls himself a god mm-hmm. and, you know, takes over when he's not supposed to. Like all of these things that you could imagine, you know, get stabbed in the Senate because he's mm-hmm. making claims that you're not supposed to be. Like, he's not acting the way you're supposed to act as the leader yes. of the Republic. Yeah. And yeah, I'm not advocating stabbing. No, right. <laughs> um, have you read uh, Mary Gerard's book, Artemisia Gentileschi and Feminism in Early Modern Europe? Just I out. have not, um, but I. It's very okay. Good. Great, love new things on Artemisia Gentileschi because it situates her in. And you guys, I know you might be thinking like oh, that sounds very dry. It totally is not. Read my review and hyperallergic. Oh, I will. Um, yeah, uh, because she situates Gentileschi as like in a culture of self-conscious feminist writers and thinkers in Italy. Mm. And mm-hmm. that's another thing. Like we always think of this, the exceptional woman and, and who just springs forth and it's never like that. Yeah. You know, she was part of a self-consciously aware, uh, directed toward female liberation cultural movement. Yes. No, that's excellent. Oh, I'm yeah, going to... Like Get that book and yeah, read it. Like it. Too sweet. And I especially, I mean, Artemisia Gentileschi is an artist who was so pigeonholed for so long by right. art historians who just right. always contextualized everything as her rape trial and just like, oh my That's God. Right. Okay. Well, not just that. When I was young, uh, many times it was like, it would be said like, oh, like known loose woman or oh. known, like there was. There would always be this sense of like, oh, she was slutty. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like, that's changed at least, but now it's all about the rape. So, you know, like baby steps. (laughs) Right. Yep. It's an ever evolving path. (laughs) Yes. Hopefully upward. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this has been such a pleasure talking to you about your book and about art history and education and history in general and this crazy fun world. That, that sounds i know right 
people don't realize they don't it's, fun. it's so fun it, yeah it really is I'm so grateful to have found <laughs> me too to have found my way here <laughs> me too I feel exactly the same way be sure to check out Bridget's books. We will link them in the show notes, Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Made Art and Made History in that order. And she votes how U.S. women won suffrage and what happened next. Hopefully my next book will have no subtitle or very short. (laughs) That's what I'm like aiming for. It's really difficult. Coming up with titles is very hard. And especially, you know, you want like the first part to because I grab them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then the I second know. part, like, what is it? But yeah, it's hard to do that succinctly. It is. Think difficult. about like two women painters in 18th century France. Like, then you want to kill yourself. You don't want right? to read it. You're like, uh. <laughs> so I got to figure I got to figure it. If anybody has ideas, send them to me. Oh, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Open invitation. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again, Bridget. And thank you all for joining us. Thanks, and- Jenny. This was awesome. Likewise, it was so fun. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The art history bay.